Welcome to the podcast to be named later, where we explore the world a conversation at a time. Sit back and enjoy. Here are your hosts, Chris and Kelly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the podcast to be named later. Chris, my co-host, is off tonight, but we have a special guest, a longtime friend, and I guess... Some people have their tax man. Some people have their lawyer. I've got my O&M guy, Marshall <laughs> Flax, who I've known for a long time, who's a low vision specialist, orientation mobility specialist, and much more. Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kelly. Nice to be here. So, Marshall, let's just jump right in. Um, some of our podcast listeners will understand the terms I just mentioned, O&M and orientation and mobility. Others uh, be like, what the heck are you talking about, Kelly? So can we jump in and what is an O&M specialist and what does that mean? Sure. Um, I'm a certified orientation and mobility specialist or COMS. Um, and I actually went to school to be able to do this. Um, so I teach people who are blind or people who have a vision impairment how to get around safely and independently. Um, and in the classic, purest form of that, it's a totally blind person with no other disabilities who is learning how to use a white cane to um, travel in a city and take public transportation and stuff like that. But that's... Um, that's not often the case. Uh, in fact, for me, it's, it's sort of rarely the case. There's usually something going on. Uh, mobility instructors are, <clears throat> we're around the world. We work with children and adults. I mean, um, there's mobility instruction for, for kids who can just barely, who have just barely learned to walk because you need to explore your, your world. Um, and I'm also um, a certified low vision therapist or CLVT and, uh, so, but I don't do that anymore since I retired. I don't work in a clinic, but I worked in, in an eye clinic for many, many years, um, working with people who had low vision. Um, that's impairment to their vision that uh, glasses and contacts can't correct. So they'd have their best pair of glasses on and um, still couldn't see well enough to do the things they, they needed to do, and particularly reading. Uh, so I'd work with their eye doctor trying to come up with um, uh, tools, most typically magnifiers, um, to uh, help them get the most that they can out of the vision that they have to work with. And then a big part of that was teaching the person what kind of vision they have and how it works and how it's getting them to, or working with them to get them to figure out what's going to work best. And I, to people who are fully sighted, that sounds like pretty lame, I, I would assume. It's like, well, you open your eyelids and you see, but if your vision is all broken up or in particular responds to different to lighting in different ways and learning how to understand that and figure out what you're going to do about lighting that you can control and what you're going to do about lighting that you cannot control. Um, that's a big part of it. So you talked about having to go to school for this. What kind of degrees required for the orientation mobility? Pretty much, so far as I know, you pretty much have to have a master's degree um, in this. It's sort of, you know, degree creep. I, I don't want to cast a negative image, but there was a time 
I don't know, probably 20, 30 years ago that, yeah, a bachelor's degree in mobility was, was, was fine, was great, but now you'd be pretty much expected to have a master's degree. So how does someone, uh, in your case, what got you, I mean, this is not your typical career. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what led you down this path? Well, you know, if you get a, a half a dozen mobility instructors uh, sitting around talking and you ask them all, well, how did they get here? I, I, almost none of them. In fact, sometimes, depending on the group, absolutely none of them will say, I always wanted to be a mobility instructor. Nearly everyone came at it from <clears throat> some different and sometimes widely different field. And they stumbled on it by accident and said, hey, this is pretty cool. Um, I had an undergraduate degree uh, in um, anthropology and women's studies. It was the 60s, man. Give me a break. But it was good. I learned a lot. I really love anthropology. Um, but it, nobody's going to hire me. Um, and when I uh, then at one point after school, I had a job driving um, school buses for kids, special education kids. And I really liked doing that. Uh, I liked working the working with the kids, driving the buses, driving the bus. But um, and just started looking at what what else could I do with that? The enjoyment I got out of that, and I was so motivated to do it. You know, go where you know, go where you want to go. Let where your, if you will, your heart leads you. And um, there happened to be a program um, in at the UW, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I was living in Madison at the time. Um, and uh, this professor had just gotten a federal grant to um, teach, to train mobility instructors, but it was a really a different slant on it. So his idea was, we'll put you through one year of becoming a mobility instructor who can teach blind people, and then we'll spend a whole nother year and you'll work with people who may have 20-20 vision, but they'll have something else going on and we'll apply the same principles. And the something else going on would be a lot. Of, I worked with a lot of people with, um, we used to say cognitive impairments. I'm, I apologize that that's no longer the appropriate term for, um, uh, for people um, with say Down syndrome or something. Um, and also people with mental illness. And again, my, my knowledge of some of this stuff is just frozen in time. And uh, nobody sends me a memo and says, no, those aren't the phrases we use. But and then sometimes it was people with both. Sometimes it was people with physical disabilities. Um, I mean, if you how do you cross a busy four way intersection if you're in a wheelchair? Which which way does it make the most sense to go if you're trying to get to the diagonally opposite corner? How can you do that with the highest degree of safety? Um, or maybe you need someone to work with you. so even if you can see everything, so you feel more confident and you build up your skills and consequently, or hopefully your, your confidence. Um, so let's talk about that. We'll jump ahead and I like to move around a little bit, but you know, um, and again, Marshall, you are both a friend and uh, have shown me routes and been a O&M specialist to me. But one of the, every once in a while, when I'm standing at a street corner, um, I think about this. I think, wow, I'm going to cross this busy street um, with this uh, metal stick in my hand. 
my judgment and the trust that the drivers are going to follow the traffic laws. Yep. Um, I don't know. Every once in a while, if you let it, that's kind of a pretty wild thing to think about. Um, uh, I don't think about it that often. I mean, it's just something you get to do and you learn to do safely. So I don't want to make it sound like it's um, not a safe thing to do. But how do you learn how to teach people that? Because really the foundation of that, at least for me, is the skills that someone has given me to understand it and equally important to know when it's not safe. How do they teach you that sort of stuff from your perspective? Yeah, well, the core course for mobility instructors is the blindfold course. So your first semester, and I think even your second semester in school, you spend quite a bit of time under blindfold um, learning how to use a cane and travel in all the situations where you're potentially going to be teaching people. Uh, quiet residential neighborhoods, um, little little re you know retail areas that are kind of busy called semi-business, and then real busy areas, uh, downtown uh, cities, public transportation, all that sort of thing. And <clears throat> so I had to learn <clears throat> learn to do it and could do could do all that under blindfold, which is actually the part of the course I loved because it was not sitting in a classroom trying to stay awake for a lecture apologize to my professor. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's sort of there. And then there are, you're right, you're dependent on the on the um, the driver following the rules. Um, and uh, that they're not they're not texting, they're not drunk or stoned or something. And so they, they stop at the red light and that sort of thing. And uh, so far, it seems to work. Um, I'm, I, I have to tell you, I, I think I'm as equally amazed as you are that it works so well most of the time. Um, it's, it's, I, <clears throat> tr yeah, full disclosure, I get really, really nervous when I'm teaching someone how to cross a street and it's early in the training and I don't know exactly what they're going to do or what, and I can never predict what the motorist is going to do. Um, so my strategy is, uh, at least initially, when when the lesson calls for this, I am I'm very I'm very close to them, um, not you know maybe um, not talking to them, not coaching them if not if that's not needed, but physically present so that for the driver, I'm a, we make a bigger visual target. Um, you might miss the five foot two woman in your field of view. But I'm 6'3", and I usually wear bright clothes when I'm on a lesson on the street. And so seeing two people in the crosswalk, that's what gets, makes it even hard to, harder to miss. I've only had a couple of occasions where some idiot driver has, you know, like where you're halfway across the intersection and they come around making a, a left turn and cut you and cut right in front of you. Um, and it's a good thing I didn't have a cane in my hand because I would have probably had had to pay a fine for doing physical damage to their vehicle because I would have hit them really hard. But so <laughs> when, you know, you and I obviously understand this, but for folks that, you know, they, they 
might not encounter someone who's blind or visually impaired very often, and they see a person standing on a street corner, could you give us the short version of kind of <laughs> how a person who's blind actually learns to cross a street? Sure. Um, if we think of a classic, typical four-way intersection controlled by traffic lights, <clears throat> and you're standing, you're wanting to, I, I, have a, I have one in my mind, and <clears throat> the traffic going the same way I'm going, we, parallel traffic is on my left, and the street I want to cross, of course, is in front of me. Um, so I stand there and I listen, and t listen to the traffic, and when I hear the traffic on the street in front of me start to slow down or perhaps even come to a halt, the traffic on my left that's going the same direction I'm going, they'll all, when they get the green light, they all hit the gas at the same time. It's called the surge. Uh, any sighted person can experience this. Just stand on the corner for a couple of light cycles with your eyes closed. Um, and that tells you <clears throat> that it's you now have the green light doesn't mean it's safe to go but you at least know if those cars are going and they're going straight then you've got the green light um, that is actually to me like pretty easy to, to do the hardest part about getting across the street is arriving on the other side pretty close to where you want to go where you wanted to end up because it's very easy to veer off and if it's a wide street and you're off a couple of degrees when you start then um, you're going to be off s several feet when many feet off of, of where you plan to end up when you get to the other side and teaching that recovery is actually um, the whole bigger part <clears throat> everything something's going to go wrong all the time is how i think of it and the big part is um the part I like teaching is, okay, so how are you going to figure that out? First of all, know that something's not right. I just crossed the street. Gosh, I'm walking a long time. Why am I not finding the sidewalk in front of me? That should be the first thing that goes off. Oh my gosh, there are cars on my, parallel cars on my right now. How in the world could that have happened? And these should be things that happen. And you say, oh my gosh, I veered into the intersection and crossed this intersection diagonally. Um, and putting all that together um, and then understanding where you are and how you're going to recover and get back to the street that and, that you want to go. I don't it's, know if that answered it. <laughs> it does, and it's um, interesting because um, whether I'm working with an O&M specialist or just, you know, I'm asking someone else, what I always tell people is, is something very similar to that. Like, what I need to know is not just the right path, but how to start detecting when I'm getting... Uh, in error and mm -hmm. how to recover. And yeah. those are all key pieces of information. Yeah. I, so, I tell my students, I say, you're going to, and I have no, I have no um, real research to back this up. I just make up a number, but the number I always make up is you're going to veer on, um, crossing a street about 80% of the time. Um, you know, eight times out of 10, you're gonna be off to some degree. Um, if you hit it, if you nail it, good for you, but that's a rarity. And so the, it isn't so much you're trying to get, make that perfectly straight crossing every time. You're just trying to get pretty close and understand exactly where you are um, when you hit the other side. <clears throat> and so, oh, Kelly, I'll jump in. I did want to mention something just for listeners about the mobility training. That's a couple of things that are pretty unique about it from compared to other 
um, called the allied health therapies or allied health, like uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy. We always teach in the real environment. So um, <clears throat> I don't have a room that I bring you to and I we we do a pretend intersection or something like that. It's always, I don't have a set of stairs to teach you on. I teach you on real stairs. Um, and I will start with somebody, if, if it's a, a, a person who's recently lost vision, never had any experience with independent travel um, <clears throat> as a person with low vision or a person who's blind. Um, I'll be walking right beside them, shoulder to shoulder, the whole way, like we're going around the block and and talking and coaching. Then, you know, also small talk and trying to get them to forget what they're what they're doing so they can start to relax. And then we let's say one lesson we get around the block a couple of times that way. And then the next day I come back and say, okay, you did that really well yesterday. I'm going to walk with you, but I'm not going to be right beside you. I'm going to be a few steps behind you. And I think you can see where this goes. They get, they get good with that. I'm right there to help them, um, but I'm not giving them information. I'm letting them find it out. And gradually they, they can do that. Okay, well this time you walk down to the end of the block, I'll catch up with you. I'll wait, wait for me when you get to the end of the block and I'll come and get you. They don't know how close or far away I am but they know I'm not right there. So it puts more of the responsibility on, on the student and that transition to that instead of, well, I don't really have to pay attention because my teacher will grab me before I fall off a curb or fall down the stairs or something, step out into a street. That, that, that doesn't happen if you're, if you're doing this right. And, and so eventually, you know, in this case of going around the block, it's like, well, I'll just wait here. You go around the block, I'll be waiting here where we started. Um, and that's just a, a mini example, but that's how it works gradually and increasing the distance, physical distance from the, from the student and, um, and putting more and more until all of the responsibility is there. <laughs> my, my instructor, when I was in graduate school, her line was, I'll be close enough to come and identify your body, but I won't be there to stop you from getting hit by a car if you don't do it right. So, <laughs> so I, don't, uh, I don't say that one too often. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you ever use that line on me. Um, but as an instructor, um, so you talk about you know you know responsibility and things like that, but um, as you're working with people, what what goes through your mind when you start to make that separation and you're observing the person? Um, what are you thinking about and doing? Yeah, that's I mean that that that's like the core. That's a great question. That's the to me what a mobility instructor should be doing. So I'm. I'm thinking, I've, I've worked with this person a little bit, you know, otherwise there wouldn't be any distance. Um, <clears throat> watching how they're moving, what's, are they relaxed? Are they tense? Are they walking fast? Are they walking slow compared to what whatever normal is for them? And, uh, and then I'm listening to the world they're listening to. So I know what they should be processing. And I know based on this, you know, the individual's ability or lack of ability, I know what they're doing with that with that information, that auditory information, and then I'm watching their cane tip, um, and so I know <clears throat> what input they're getting from their from their cane, and I also know what they should be doing with that information, um, and so, you know, if somebody's walking down the middle of the sidewalk with a cane, 
tap, tap, side to side. And then their cane, they veer, they, they edge over to the right side and the cane tip starts to hit grass. I expect them to recognize that and then alter their course by a few degrees so they're, they move back away from the, from the grass line, from the, somebody's yard or whatever it is. Um, and if they don't do that and they don't do it quickly, then I know hmm, there's something going on here that <clears throat> make, start making a list, things we need to work on. Um, and uh, they come to, uh, you know, we don't really even have curbs anymore. We all, everything's ramps, but, you know, back in the day, you know, the cane, you're walking down the street and the, or down the sidewalk and the cane goes off the curb. So there's about a four inch drop. Uh, you should freeze when that happens because it's not expected. And if they don't, I mean, I see the, I, I've moved up, so I'm there where I can grab them because I don't know if they're going to freeze. I don't want them stepping off and uh, hurting an ankle. But um, yeah, that's what I'm watching all of this stuff and listening to everything and have a, a prediction of what they should do and then noting where they, ver where they deviate from that, um, assuming that they do. Yeah, they always do. I always tell, when people make mistakes, I always say, hey, if you didn't make any mistakes, I wouldn't have to be here and you, could, we could, you and I could go on our merry way. I always think about this because, especially as you work with um, individuals more, well, sometimes there's a rapport that develops. Um, you and I, for example, I know that we're, we're friends as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember uh, that first time you're doing that, whatever you want to call it, solo or person's not around, mm -hmm. um, on my side of that equation, there can be a little bit of nervousness of am I going to do this right? You know, I don't want to get do it wrong or have a big thing. Um, and do you find it at all difficult to, uh, like, have that separation, uh, separate that emotion? Um, I think when I was younger, I think I might have had a tendency to um, sometimes say, I don't need to do that. I got it. And try maybe a little bit of avoidance. I don't, I can't say I, that was a constant, but I know thinking that once in a while, like, and just that, Hey, we have to do this. And part of this is like Chris and I, my co-host often talk about sports and the repetitive nature of training so that things happen automatically during the game. And as I've thought about, you know, the orientation mobility lessons and just routes and, everything else, there's some similarities there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so sometimes you got to be the mean coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, you know, bribing and cajoling because, um, you know, <clears throat> I always tell my, my students basically, um, you are the boss. You're, you're the person in charge. And so you can tell me what you want to do and what you don't want to do. But if you don't want to do something or you want to do it differently, I'm going to explain to you why that's not a good idea. And, I, and I'm going to write it down in my notes. So if we end up in court, I'll pull out my notes. I told him it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, I try not to drill. Well, you, you know what? I, working with adults, um, I can't really drill you. I can't force you to do stuff over and over and over. And there are people who should. So it's trying to keep it light. Um, and I'm, I'm really co coaxing as opposed to coaching 
coaxing and I wouldn't say I'm ever bribing with, with an adult. Like, hey, if you, if you get down here, we'll stop at McDonald's and get a milkshake or something. I think I've done that sort of thing, but I don't do that regularly. Um, yeah, it's, you gotta, you gotta nudge people along. <clears throat> One of the things I've learned is that, you know, while people need to focus on say, whatever the lesson of the day is, you, you know, walking down the sidewalk or listening for sounds or something like that. But it also helps to be able to, to get your mind off this, the, the process. So you're just starting to go for a walk. And, you know, it's just like, and I love it when people say, yeah, for a little while there, I forgot I was blind. I forgot I was walking with a cane. I was just walking along the sidewalk, listening to the birds. And that's pretty neat when they can do that. Yeah, I know. I've had routes or, you know, uh, as you know, I lived in the Seattle area and I used to walk down this one kind of path and things like that. And it was really, you know, you could just really kind of focus on cruising. I wanted mm-hmm. to follow up on something else you said that I've always found fascinating as well about the process. When you talked about, you know, um, recommending certain things or not certain things, um, Obviously, there's different ways that someone who's blind can learn an environment. You know, sometimes it's, hey, you figure it out yourself. Sometimes it's, I'm going to work with an O&M person to plan out routes um, or things like that. Uh, It's always interesting to me when I think about all the things that, if I'm going to work with an O&M person, that I can get them to look at. um, Or can you talk a little bit about that? Like, you know, I just think of experiences like, oh, I want to get into this store. Well, how am I going to get across the parking lot? Where am I going to, which door is the best one? Just could you give a couple examples of the kind of things you think about when you're helping someone figure out a route? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things I, you know, as you know, I'm old. <laughs> and it's like, all the stuff they taught me in school was really good, but I don't know that I think about it anymore. And it just seems more and more, it comes down to a few things. And one of these few things is what does the student already know? That's the first thing I need to know. Um, you want to get into the store. Well, where, what do you think that looks like? What do you tell me what that's going to, how that's going to work? Do you even know? Here's where you, we just got off the bus. Do you, can you point? I often ask, can you point where you think the, the store is? And sometimes they're right on, and sometimes they they have no clue. Okay, well let's we got to build this map in your head, and then <clears throat> I am to a fault. I think sometimes to a to a great fault. Pretty transparent in what I do with people, um, and <clears throat> in my teaching, and I will tell them, um, tell the student, tell the client. Okay, here's here's the approach I'm going to take. I can change that if it doesn't work. I'll tr- we can try something else, but I'm telling you so you can understand what we're going to do. And um, <clears throat> you tell me if this tell me if this is working for you because I figure the student doesn't really know that they're possibly when it's when it's true uh, different ways to get oriented to the inside of a store. Um, you know, <clears throat> so okay, here's what I'm going to try. I mean, honestly, 99 times out of 100. It's just fine, whatever I pick, because I, I'm trying to pick sort of the lowest level, if you will, the the most concrete, least um, 
ethereal or something, I don't know, uh, way to understand the store. Uh, if we're talking about like I was learning the, how to get around to a grocery store. Um, and I wandered off my thread there teaching. Oh yeah. Teaching how to like the orient, uh, helping them develop a map. What are the available clues? Um, it's all good. I'm going to ask you a, Another question related to this, without giving away, obviously, any confidential information. Sure. Um, are there experiences you've had, like, let's say that that come to mind, like, uh, you know, if we were going to tie it to sports, it was like hitting a home run or scoring a touchdown where you mm. worked with someone and you were like, holy smokes, this is really going to be uh, a challenging thing to orient someone to. But, you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to make it happen and like something that comes to mind and experience um so short answer is i can't think of one and it's not because there aren't any it's because it, it doesn't quite work like that it's i don't know but i don't know if i can make it into a sports analogy so i won't try um so i'm teaching somebody how to get to their their new classrooms for a semester um and along the way, there might be a small point we work on, like they just struggle with locating this door and then boom, they got it. But that's only a small part of this, the bigger route. And then, well, for me, it's like, great, that really, you did that really well today. <laughs> uh, but we're going to come back tomorrow and try it again. And of course, uh, honest, honestly, it's always the second day. If I'm working with a new student on a, on a campus, it's like, oh, we have a good time the first day and then come back the second day and it's like to add on and refresh. And it's like, I say, you're gonna be showing me everything you forgot overnight. <laughs> so I like it. The feeling I get isn't so much that dramatic, yeah, home run touchdown thing, but at the end, and the person's capable of getting to and from their their goals, get the class independently, whatever that kind of thing. That feels really good, and I really that that I really like. Um, and I you know I give myself some credit for that when it works well, and I I I don't beat myself up, but I go, geez, why didn't that work any better? What was what could I have done differently when it doesn't work well? It is funny that you mentioned mentioned the in the, the small things is what I take away from that because. Again, um, you've done some of this work with myself, and I think back to um, uh, when I started in Madison uh, at the University of Wisconsin. You know, I had a little bit of an interesting background because you actually met me when I was in high school, and between that time and my starting college, I had a significant, uh, or at least uh, to me significant, vision change. In mm -hmm. that, when you first met me and I was 16, uh, I could see a small, I was legally blind, very blind, still braille and all the other things, but um, I didn't really even use a cane then. Mm -hmm. I remember. <laughs> um, and I think I got around okay. Um, you were stunning. Um, uh, when you're done, I'll tell, I'll tell a quick story when you're done with this part. <laughs> but you know, you then, uh, between... Uh, then and starting college, I had I lost all my vision, mm -hmm. and I'd had a couple lessons with a cane, but really probably not as many as maybe I should have. I don't know. 
And so I think back to learning some of that first semester of the campus and some of those routes still stick in my mind up a hill, you know, through this building. Hey, here's where this vending machine is. I could probably, you know, they're probably not there anymore, but I can probably tell you the best place to get a soda in uh, <laughs> Bascom Hall um, at one point. And it was those little things or wow, you know, just finding that door handle um, or that flight of stairs uh, and, you know, walking so that your hand hits the door handle. Um, those those little successes were uh, are my versions of the home runs, actually. That's really neat to hear because, yeah, it's it just it makes such a difference. It you I. I assume my student feels like they're, yeah, every, things are working. I can, yep, I heard that pop machine. I know where I am, I know where I am right now. You know, and that, uh, oh, the quick story I was gonna tell when I met, met you, Kelly, and you were, I think, yeah, 16 at high school and we'd never met and I show up as a mobility instructor just to work with you a little bit because I think uh, you're, you needed mobility and somebody wasn't available had left the district or something, but we'd never met. And I said, okay, show me what, how you get to class, show me around. And the bell rings and anybody who's been in a big modern high school knows that the, the hallways just fill shoulder to shoulder with this like lava flow of students going in all directions. And you're just, no cane. I don't think you had a cane. Zipping along, you knew exactly where you were. You weren't touching anything. You weren't bumping into people. And I, and I was, I mean, a relatively young, new instructor at that time, and I'm trying to figure this out. And I, we got back and I looked at your teacher, and I'm thinking, you set me up on, this, this is a joke, right? This guy can see, he's not blind, he's, you know, but then I realized, oh, it's just, you had, you had a little bit of vision, but you also had tremendous talent for integrating what your vision gave you, what your hearing gave you, what your... Uh, what your brains, your intelligence gave you about making your making your way through the school, um, and not not everybody can do that. But uh, I mean, not every blind person can do that, or not at the level that that you were doing it back then. Yeah, I mean, I remember that I would, and I've said this, uh, you know, I guess being sharing a little more about my personal life on the podcast than sometimes I do. But <laughs> I've said this uh, before. Um, if I was going to have that vision change, um, it was a good time to happen before I started college. Because mm -hmm. um, I think it would have been really tough. I don't think I would have been that. I think I would have struggled with my uh, high school way of getting around in college. Um, and I think that the vision change, if it was going to happen, st happening before I started college, you know, really, I, when I think back about my life, it's just, okay, this is how, you know, high school or before I did this, college, it's this, and um, they're just different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to jump back to one, uh, as they keep coming up in my memory, uh, something about my being in graduate school and mobility. One of the, you know, we do all this stuff as students. Uh, when we mobility instructors are in school to become mobility instructors, we do all this stuff under blindfold. And then at the end of that, of that semester, everybody has their drop-off lesson. And that's, you meet your instructor, um, put, on a, put on your blindfold, and these are like, you don't see, you don't see anything, not light, anything. 
um, blindfolds and uh, in my case, got in her car. <clears throat> she drove me all around. I mean, we had worked in one particular neighborhood uh, near the UW campus. And uh, so we knew it, or we were supposed to know it pretty well and know all its little subtle differences, like this street's a dead end, this one's a T intersection, you know, uh, Ash Street is this way, Chamberlain is this way, that kind of stuff. And under, we're supposed to understand that because we've been working in it all semester. So we got in the car, <clears throat> she drives me all around in a crazy zigzag route that I can tell, I can't tell where we are, but I can tell she's doing it to make sure I, I can't tell where we are. And then the car stops and she says, okay, get out. And I knew, I mean, it wasn't a surprise. I knew this was coming. So I get out and the deal is I've got two hours to meet her at the US mailbox on the corner of whatever the two streets were. And I cannot ask anybody for help. And I don't know where I am, um, but I'm somewhere within the boundaries of the neighborhood we've walked, or we've been working in. Uh, it's a pretty good sized neighborhood. Um, so that lesson, everybody, everybody goes through that. Um, I had the good fortune to stumble as I got out of the car and fall into a chain link fence. <laughs> and I knew right away there was only one chain link fence in the, in the whole neighborhood. Um, or if there was more than one, I'd certainly never found it. Found the chain link fence, listened to the traffic, heard where I was, knew exactly where I was, and knew not to go down the, you know, knew where I was going. I got, oh, the shortcut. Oh, I could go there. But no, that's a dead end street. And I would never get never get to the mailbox. Um, so I had to sort of go the longer way around. But I knew where I was and I had a pretty good map. And um, that's just a lesson that we all do. And it's, I don't know if it's bonding, but it sure teaches you that, uh, yeah, you can do this. Got some skills. <laughs> So it's um, quite an interesting thing uh, that you've done this for so long. I guess, um, like a lot of us, you don't do just one thing. And at some point, um, you must have come to a crossroads uh, as you work through <laughs> all of your careers. Because um, you started a business um, that um, other people out in a community might be familiar with, or at least maybe not the business, but some of the results. Um, and I'll probably get the name wrong, but I believe the official name of your business is Fork in the Road Low Vision Rehabilitation. Pretty close. Fork in the Road Vision Rehabilitation Services, LLC. Yeah. So uh, tell us about that and um, what that's all about and the other area of your work that that business has um Ben. Sure. Well, first, the name Fork in the Road, since we're talking all sports here, that comes from Yogi Berra. You know, his um, the, Yogi Berra was a great philosopher, and his stuff is just, it's, it's really good. I'm not being facetious. And his famous line, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Um, and I've looked at that as a model. Uh, that's how my life has run, kind of. And I've always thought that's a great model for rehabilitation. Um, and a lot of things in our lives. And by the way, <clears throat> the true story behind that, at least I've read that it's true, is Bear, when you were if you would drive to Barra's house, you would come to a fork in the road and it really didn't matter which way you went because it was like uh, maybe like a cul-de-sac or something and it went around, either way you were gonna get to his house. So it, was a, it wasn't a stupid statement made, made him look like, a, like an idiot. It was, yeah, come to a fork in the road, take it. So I, um, 
I make my business is primarily making and selling <clears throat> low vision simulators. I <clears throat> buy welders goggles and take them apart, take the lenses out, put different kinds of plastic and styrofoam and bubble wrap and stuff in between lenses and make um, a goggle. <clears throat> now the goggle simulates um, different types of vision impairment and different levels of vision impairment. Um, and I sell them on, on the internet, uh, lowvisionsimulators.com, if you want to look at my website, if you're trying to figure out what I'm talking about. Um, I sell them all over the world. I just, I just sent some to, uh, yesterday morning, sent some to a guy in Turkey, um, which is my first, my first sale in Turkey. I have a map on the wall with pins in it. Uh, for every place I sell. Um, so I make 13 different simulators. Um, and like I say, different, different eye pathologies, different, um, uh, different levels. I can make custom ones if people really want. Um, <clears throat> and I stress, I've got a big disclaimer page on my website. This does not, this is not what, putting on this simulator is not what it's like to have low vision. Um, <clears throat> uh, because that's all, because you're going to take, the, you're, you're fully sighted. You're going to take this off. You know, from the moment you put it on, it's going to come off in a minute or five minutes or an hour or whatever. Um, but it does help fully sighted people understand some of the functional limitations and the functional abilities um, of different types of vision impairment. So my experience is most sighted people who aren't in the field or don't have some connection to vision, vision impairment, they think either you see 100%, 20-20, full visual fields, or you don't see, zip, nada, you know, um, nothing going on. The reality is, at least in the U.S., three-quarters of the legally blind population has low vision. So that's a lot of people. You probably walk by them on the street um, uh, often, not every day maybe, but often, because a lot of people with low vision can get walk down the street just fine, or hopefully they're walking down the sidewalk just fine. Um, so I make these, uh, I mean, it's like I said, sell them all over the world, but, well, damn, lost my thread. <laughs> uh, no worries. So I, I mean, we chatted a little bit about this, and I just want to get your perspective. You've already hinted at it, and I know that you put some thought into it. Um, some people would say in the you know accessibility world that like simulating disability is really not a cool thing to be doing mm -hmm. um, at all. Like if you want to know the you know whatever it is, go talk to people and things like that. I know what's your perspective and what kind of thoughts have you had around this? Sure. On the I'll say on the positive side, <clears throat> when I show. I used to go to a lot of uh, professional conferences and conventions and exhibit the stuff, you know, be in the, and I would show them to both um, people who were fully sighted, who were in the field, people who were visually impaired in the field. And, and we all agreed, you can spend all day showing people two-dimensional photographs or drawings of this is what it might look like to someone with glaucoma or macular degeneration. And they might get it, and they might not. But if they put on a simulator, instantly they get it. I mean, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on who they are. But it, it's so fast, and it allows you to then to do things like now you can look at your cell phone or walk around or try and pour a cup of coffee. As far as whether it's a good thing or not to 
simulate this ability, I think just about all of that rests on the context that that's presented in. Because um, <clears throat> I wore low vision simulators in graduate school and I wore, and we had to go around and try and get into bathrooms in wheelchairs and stuff like that. I remember that vividly. I can still look at a bathroom stall now and go, there are not many of them of them left, fortunately, but like, well, this is useless. If I was really in a wheelchair, this one sucks. You know, I'm not gonna be, I mean, I can't close the door. I'll be, I'll be taking a poop in, in, in what everybody will see. Um, so I think if it's presented clearly, first of all, it's not the same as having the vision impairment and there's discussion about what what was what I always ask uh, people when I've done presentations is, so what did you find that was harder to do than you expected? And yeah, everybody, oh, it's hard to walk around. Oh, I couldn't see the buttons in the elevator, um, <clears throat> things like that. Okay, <clears throat> and what did you do that you found was easier than expected? Oh yeah, well, you know, I didn't walk into any walls. I didn't bump into stuff like I thought I was. Some some of the simulations, you will bump into stuff because that's just the, the limitation that's imposed. But helping people understand that it's not just a one-way experience. It's all negative, it's gloom, and it's the same. You know, it's this is what it's like. So yeah, there's some good things. Um, a side note, so sometimes I get a customer who will <clears throat> contact me and say, I really want to show my boss about my vision impairment because he doesn't get it. And and sometimes it's because the boss doesn't believe they're really visually impaired, and sometimes the boss believes that they shouldn't even walk out of the office alone. You know, it's either way. When I say, fine, here's what would roughly mimic your your vision at this point, but remember, it's a double-edged sword here. Um, they might think, oh my gosh, she can see that much. You know, holy cow. Well, then we're gonna we're not going to do these things for her anymore. We're going to change how we behave. Maybe not in the way that the employee wanted. And then the other, the, the flip of that, of course, oh, she can't see any of that stuff. Oh my gosh, we, this is really serious. We've got to do something about this. <clears throat> the employee's functional abilities haven't changed a bit, but you've changed the person's perception and you, you have to be very careful um, when it's in a personal situation like that, because you don't have any control on how they'll how they'll do it. But a big part of that comes with the, um, at least when doing a, a general simulation, like for a class, uh, guiding people through it. And and I, I, I know there are terrible, crappy simulations of disability that go on out there. And I'm sure they're done using the simulators I make. But I mean, there's a limit to which I can control stuff. Um, and I also am pretty sure there's some pretty good simulations. I sell a lot of these to um, schools, uh, like university programs that are preparing occupational therapists or OT assistants, PTs, um, senior living facilities, places like that. And I have to believe that um, the, the employees are getting, if that's who's, the students or the employees are getting <clears throat> a much better idea of what a vision impairment among <clears throat> either their future patients or customers or clients, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> or the people that they're they're working with. I mean, I, I used to go to um, 
assisted living centers to do little workshops. And I would tell the director and say, you know, I can help your, your staff understand everybody from your PhD level uh, executives to your um, GED level people say doing custodial work or in the kitchen in two minutes, they will get it. Why Mrs. Jones never seems to recognize them when, uh, when they come into the room or, or things like that. It's like, because they couldn't understand Well, she can see da 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 when she never knows who I am, uh, which point I would say, and you're all women between five, four and five, eight, and you're wearing smock, same colored smock and you have your hair pulled back uh, in a ponytail. Yeah, I can't tell who you are either. Sorry, that's just one of my, one of my things about trying to visually discriminate people in, uh, in institutions. Everybody looks alike. I'll stop there, Kelly. <laughs> so short version, you mentioned that, because uh, again, when you build these things, uh, this is definitely um, a hands-on process. Um, to the extent you want to describe, without giving away all your secret sauce, um, although I think you're pretty open about it, <laughs> like you, you told me you go get these welding masks and then do this like, What's it like? What do I mean? Your house just full of all these supplies, or how does it? How, like, what's what's the low vision simulator factory floor like, if you will? It is pretty small. Um, we have a room in our house that <clears throat> it probably could function as a small bedroom in the basement. Actually, has windows. Not that I ever have the shades up. Got a a treadmill and a. And in the winter, we put our bicycles there so we can ride bikes indoors on things. So that takes up half the room. <clears throat> and then the rest is uh, is my simulator stuff. I buy, um, yeah, I buy these welder's goggles and I have to get the kind that are no longer in fashion. Um, and they've been hard to get. I'm the world's, as far as I know, I am the world's single biggest consumer of this type of welding goggle. Um, <clears throat> so it's, you can't, I, mine are the kind that fit over your glasses, which is important. So we don't we don't want you taking your glasses off and adding your nearsightedness or then uncorrected nearsightedness, uncorrected astigmatism to um, to the simulation, and um, <clears throat> and they yeah they fit over your glasses, um, and they <clears throat> they can they have two separate. 50 millimeter lenses for in front of, or a 50 millimeter diameter lens in front of each eye. So it's not a big rectangular lens. It's two two round lenses, um, and I buy different types of plastic. Um, and one of the hardest things is getting plastic. <laughs> I, I I I call up these com plastic companies and ask them to send me samples because I'm not interested in the strength or anything about it. I want to know what its optical qualities are. And this is industrial plastic. Um, it's, you know, they don't know what I'm doing with it. They don't care. I don't, I'm not gonna bore them with explaining it. But it's like, could you just send me, you know, a few inches off the roll and then I can test it and go, all right, this, Matt, this will give me, when I, with one layer of this or three layers of this, and I'll have 20 over 200, which is an important number in this field. 20 the visual acuity of 20 over 200. Um, and then styrofoam, bubble wrap, different things. I have to cut them all out into 50 millimeter diameter discs, um, punch holes in some, 
cut some of them in into different sizes. Um, it's a lot of kind of bo very boring, tedious handwork. It's not hard physical labor. Um, and yeah, I've been listening to to books. Um, I can't watch TV when I do it because it's I can't I can listen to TV and listen to music, um, but you know I got to keep my eyes <clears throat> my eyes on what I'm doing. Can't do it. I can't do it completely mindlessly. Um, yeah, no, I buy. I get these cases of these goggles. They come 100 to a case. We have to take them out, take them out of the bags, separate all the lenses. Then all the vinyl goggle parts have all been squashed coming over from Taiwan, and, and now they're all smushed. Most 95 out of 100 are smushed. So I have to take those 15 at a time put them in what's called the warming drawer of our oven up in our in our kitchen, upstairs in our kitchen, and put them in for about 15 minutes, 15 at a time. It takes a while. And they warm up, and then they're all nice and perfect again. And then I start putting them all back together with the different materials that for the, um, you know, if I'm, I'm doing it one way, if I'm simulating macular degeneration, I'm doing it a different way if I'm simul simulating glaucoma, stuff like that. Um, then they, I have an air compressor, one of my big, big purchases to blow all the little grit and dust out. So, because there's so much static electricity, any, anything just gloms right onto this plastic. Um, get everything sealed up, put a label on it, put it in a plastic bag, put it on the shelf. Um, look at my email, there's an order. Somebody in Turkey wants a bunch. And I, I go through, I go through all then the whole shipping and you know, the international sales is shipping and customs and all of that stuff. Um, Sounds like yeah. quite a quite a hands-on interesting process to uh, have be building these for all the years you have. Yeah, I've made thousands and thousands of these. Sometimes I'll be doing one and I'll go instantly. Something's not right here. I can tell, and it's this. Um, <clears throat> The plastic will just not feel right. And I'll go, oh, it's two layers. They stuck together. And they stuck together perfectly the same. But I can tell by just the feel or the weight of this plastic bag. I mean, I'm impressed. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking, I'm doing this too long. I can tell these subtle differences. <laughs> and I think the way, of, oh, client can pick up a subtle drop off on a side, subtle change in elevation on a sidewalk when he's, when he's walking with a cane, you know, good for you. You, you didn't notice that about a month ago. Now you're, you're able to detect this. Yeah. It kind of makes a funny little up and down there. I don't know what, I don't know why that happened when they poured that concrete, but it's, it is interesting how you learn those little things uh, and they become um, landmarks. landmarks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> I always like to wear uh, thinner shoes because I just feel so much of the sidewalk in uh, my travel areas through my feet. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, Marshall, um, you've been doing this orientation mobility stuff for a long time. Um, uh, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about how traffic patterns, construction, uh, how has that evolved over the years? and gotten more difficult, easier, or it's just, it is what it is? Yeah, it's a, I hadn't thought about that so much. Um, the big, the big scary news 15 years ago, <clears throat> as your audience might know, we're in the upper Midwest. Um, 
roundabouts, roundabouts came in and oh my gosh. And we actually, we put on, I worked with, I was working for a nonprofit then and we organized, uh, um, uh, brought in an outside specialist, mobility instructor and outside specialist to teach us as mobility instructors in the state how to deal with roundabouts um, for, with our, you know, with our clients. Um, so that was one thing. Um, the everything now, I mean, everything is an accessible, everything. Sidewalks are an accessible ramp. <clears throat> there are very few neighborhoods anymore with uh, drop-offs, uh, with real curbs, sorry, <laughs> shop talk, drop-offs. We don't care. We don't care what it is. It's a drop, it's a drop-off, four inches, four feet. It's a drop-off. Um, and so <clears throat> there are some places with the blended curbs and stuff where if you're not paying attention, you can just, it feels just perfectly fine. You can walk right out um, into the, uh, into the street and not feel that you've even left the sidewalk. You don't detect the, the, the gutter. Um, but a few things like that, I think as buildings, as the, I think the code, the building code helps and it just takes so long for the need for the something to break down to where it has to be replaced I mean, something in the physical environment that the that the they have to replace it and then they bring it up to code because you know they're not going to go tear up all the intersections and bring them up to code unless they're um, crumbling or something the talking signals the talking pedestrian signals um i they're great i think they i, I feel like such a a, a cranky curmudgeon about this but you really i try to get you really should be able to do this without a talking signal you know it's they're helpful they're they certainly take some of the stress out um of knowing when it's safe to cross but come on one day you're you're going to hit an intersection without a talking pedestrian signal you're going to so one day the signals won't work or there'll be too much there'll be a, a bus or a truck idling right there and you won't be able to hear the signal or something um you should learn to do it without but that's that's you know that's the cranky old guy thinking you young whippersnappers back in my day we didn't have these things and we literally of course didn't have those things um and then gps um which i've never learned to use successfully i mean i can do google right i can just yell at my phone and tell it to navigate to a to a particular place and <clears throat> I've learned to do that much, but the handheld GPS um, or the apps for for navigating as a person who's blind, I can't teach that. I don't know it. And I tell people right up front, if that's what you want, I'm going to have to find somebody else for you because that came in as I was going out of the field and I <clears throat> chose not to add it to my repertoire. Uh, same thing happened in low vision as every as everything went to apps everything many many things went to apps the population has low vision now of course grew up using uh, computers and apps and phones and they uh they don't have to i mean what was i going to say they yeah they, a straight optical magnifier you know a, a magnifier a handle with a lens in it uh, they're still useful and valuable but my god you can just pull out your phone and take a picture and magnify it and read what you want to read or have it your phone read to you or something. And so I don't know that stuff well enough to teach it. That's the other big change in the field for me in the blind rehab field. 
uh, and they're good. I'm not completely, don't, nobody get the wrong idea. I'm not complaining. It's great. It's just a whole curriculum I didn't want to learn. I did not want to go back to school and, and, and learn that. You know, I, the GPS apps are, are interesting. I use them. Um, I have mixed opinions about them. Um, obviously I, they're, they're handy. Um, the, uh, there's a few things I keep uh, saying I'd love to see in them. Um, most of the directions that you get from apps, they still don't tell you all the streets you're crossing. Um, they might tell you, you know, even the pedestrian directions often will say, you know, turn right on fifth street. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, how do you know that if you're starting on first street that there's a second, third and fourth always, <laughs> you don't, uh, I mean, so you have other skills right. for that. I wish they would do that. And then, um, even today, they don't always know if there's sidewalks, um, hmm. you know, and really there are different parts of the country and cities everywhere where sidewalks, uh, you know, some places they exist, some they don't. Um, but I look at it as these are all technologies that, you know, people will integrate um, in certain ways. Um, I'm still a big fan of knowing how to cross streets without a audio signal. Um, not to say I don't use them or appreciate them. And there are, I've found certain places where they're immensely helpful or they can mm-hmm. shorten your route. But I, I'm certainly glad that I have the, the knowledge to know how to cross streets. And the knowledge to know which streets I just simply won't cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, one one tech change that's really been helpful to me in mobility is Google Maps. Um, so if a, if I get a call, <clears throat> can you work with, you know, so and so, and I go find out what he wants to do, and I can, you know, I mean, Google Earth, Google Maps, everything. I can look and I can, you know, go, oh there's no sidewalk on his, his side of the street, or there is, but not on the other side. Oh, here's the story he says he wants to learn to get to. Holy cow, look at that intersection. And I know all this stuff, it, and I still go and drive around it. I have to, I always, um, whatever that would be, screen or get the knowledge. I always go check out my routes. You only, I only had to be like fooled once, you know, to find out it is not a good idea to guess because all I can do then is tell the client, well, if you'll wait here, I've got to go run around here and find out <clears throat> why this route doesn't work anymore and what's your best alternative. And that's a waste of their time because I can do better. Anyway, they, yeah, it's uh, Google Maps and uh, Google Earth have been really helpful. So good for Google for help and mobility. <laughs> That's great. You know, Marshall, when um, in my professional day job, when I've interviewed people um, and chatted with them, one of the questions I always like to ask, I'm going to toss out to you in this way as we wrap up the podcast, I'll always ask them something like, you know, um, you might have thought about things that you were hoping you would be asked about in this interview or cover. Uh, so is there any last things you'd like podcast listeners to know um, that we didn't cover so far? Um, well, you know, I'm, I think orientation mobility is a great, um, a great vocation. So this is a pitch to people who are thinking they want to change jobs, or maybe they've got someone in their life who's looking at a career, but they don't know what they they'd like to work in something, but they don't know what, and they'd like to be in the helping, um, professions. O&M, 
it's I, it's a field that nobody else wants. Um, it, it's that would be the thing. You go to school, you get your degree, it pays like a school teacher. Um, it's not bad, you know, in that respect. And if you like, you might work inside with kids, depending on what you want to do with your with your degree. Uh, you might be like me. I'm, I only work with adults. Um, I, I'm outside. Well, not all the time. Sometimes I'm inside huge office buildings and stuff, teaching people things. But anyway, I always put in a plug for orientation and mobility. <clears throat> it's a great field. Um, we need, and we need. Oh, there's definitely a labor uh, uh, labor shortage in in the field. So if you're, you get your degree, there'll be a job for you somewhere in the country the moment you graduate. Uh, you might not know the answer to this, but if someone was interested in learning more about that, are there uh, is there a professional organization or website or colleges that they should check out? Yeah, there would be. I would go to <clears throat> our professional association is um, <clears throat> AER. I'll, I'll tell you the words, but it's AERBVI, Association for Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired. So AERBVI. That's, that will get you there. And then our certification organization is ACVREP, Academy for Certification of Vision Rehabilitation and Education Professionals. It's the trouble with this field. We've always got to say rehabilitation, which is adults, and education, which is children. And those are long words. And we, both of those nearly always have to be in the names or titles of things that we do because when we're serving both. Um, but ACVREP or AERBVI, and that will get you, that will be a big wide door into, into what's going on in the field. Well, great. Marshall, uh, I want to thank you immensely for spending time. Obviously, as I told podcast listeners, we're friends, um, but you've uh, been immensely informative and entertaining. And uh, thanks for being our guest. Sure. And next week, I understand you're having Yana Santacucumpo on, right? Is that who you're interviewing? Have you become my podcast producer and you're lining him <laughs> up for me? Okay. All right. I wish. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the podcast to be named later. And I hope everyone has a great week.